It was an afternoon back in 1985 that I went into David's house and into his room where we would always hang out. And he told me that I had to listen to this new song. He was very excited about it. It was Take On Me by the Norwegian band Aha. He'd either taped it off the radio or we just waited for it to come on. I don't remember anymore. But he loved it, especially the part where the lead singer on the first word of the chorus says take on a very low key before jumping up an octave for the words on me. That was the part he really liked. I spent years hanging out with David and I have endless memories of our time together. Too many to even consider memories per se. It's more that they're part of me, part of who I am, kind of part of everything that I do. But for whatever reason, that song, which became ubiquitous and synonymous with 80s music, was always the song that I associated with David. I even sent him an email with a link to a classical version of it this past December. He appreciated it, though he actually had already heard that version. David Schimmel died alone last week at the age of 51. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. David Schimmel was hilarious. Everyone who knew David Schimmel knew he was hilarious, but not in a conventional way. He used to dream of being a stand-up comedian, but it never happened. I'm going to be upfront because David was probably the most honest person I ever met, so I'll do the same. The one time I saw him do stand-up in Israel, it wasn't that great. Now, of course, many of the great stand-ups start off bombing and then get better, but I don't really think that David would have done that. He was more hilarious in a different kind of way. There was one joke that David told that I'm going to tell now, and I'm going to warn you in advance, it's not funny. Like, I mean, genuinely, it's not a funny joke. David told it in fifth grade, and I'll just say it. Apparently, he was in Maimonides in Boston, and his teacher had some sort of system where, depending on how many fingers you raised, the teacher would know what you want. Like, for example, one would be you have a question, two fingers up would mean you have an answer, three fingers up is you have a story. Whatever it was, I think five fingers was a joke. So the teacher had said, in talking about Christmas, I guess it was that time of year, that Jewish people shouldn't say Christmas. They should say Xmas. David raised five fingers and was called on. And here's the not funny joke. He said, does that mean that when we buy a car, we shouldn't call it a Chrysler. We should call it an Exler. Okay, I told you, it's not funny. But it's very, very strange because I remember that moment. I wasn't in David's class, but I remember that moment. For some reason, it's the ultimate location joke. The ultimate example of a joke where you had to be there. And for some reason, 
That joke gained traction like you wouldn't believe. Around Newton, where David and I lived, everyone was talking about the hilarious thing that David Schimmel had said. David used to laugh years later about a guy going up to his father in Chula and saying, oh, I see your son's a comedian. And looking back, that bad joke might have been the height of David's comedy career. It was kind of a peak that he wanted to reach again, but he never did after fifth grade in that way. But while he wasn't a stand-up comedian, he was always so funny in the way that he interacted with people. He just had a very funny way of doing things, almost always making himself the butt of the joke, which in retrospect, by the way, might not have been so healthy. It might have been putting himself down too much. But it always made us laugh. Like he would make comments and he would do crazy things. Like one time I remember in 12th grade, we were at the Newton North track, a bunch of us running around the track, having races. Now, David was extremely fast, but he had no stamina. So we said, let's say, I don't remember exactly. We'll go around the track three times or four times, whatever it is. We said, ready, set, go. We started running and David took off and was so far ahead of everybody. It wasn't even close. About halfway around the first lap, and the rest of us were maybe a quarter of the way around the first lap, David was running, sprinting. He suddenly stopped, out of breath, lay down on the ground. And that was the end of the race for him. And he just said hi to everybody who casually passed him as he never even bothered finishing the race because he was so far gone. Why did he do that? Because that's the kind of stupid thing that he would do just to make people laugh and to make fun of himself. And I say stupid thing in the most positive way I know how. I mean that as a very, very strong compliment. He would appreciate that. Like he and I used to play wiffle ball all the time. We had these marathon wiffle ball games in his backyard. We had them with other guys, but sometimes, maybe most of the time, I think, it was just me and him. And David had this pitch called a riser. Now, I don't know physically how that works exactly, but we both could throw a riser. My riser was actually a pretty good pitch because I didn't do it so well, meaning I throw the wiffle ball and it would then go up a couple of inches, which kind of fooled the batter. David's riser was insane. He would throw it and it would go so far up, it would then climb past the plate onto his parents' garage, and then over the garage into the next-door neighbor's yard. It was a dumb pitch because it was so obviously coming. It would just travel up. But David would sometimes throw it anyway, even if it were a three-and-two count, just to make me crack up. He'd do funny things at his own expense. I remember we used to play catch. He had a first baseman's glove. We'd play basketball all the time. He was as big a Red Sox fan as I was. Back in those days, we could get tickets to... Fenway for very little money. We take the tea, go to Fenway, buy bleacher or standing room only tickets, and just watch a game. I remember one game, we were in the bleachers. It was 1986, because that was the year the Red Sox won the pennant. We walked down from our high bleacher seats down to the bullpen. I remember David asked Joe Sambito, who was a relief pitcher for the Red Sox then, for a ball, which he didn't get. So instead, he started asking him for a rosin bag, which no one asked for. It's just the kind of thing that he was like, well, why not? That's, don't you want to see what a rosin bag actually feels like? And yeah, I guess I do. When we were younger, we went to Grossman Day Camp together. We definitely saw ourselves as the coolest guys on the bus. And I'm reasonably certain that we were the only two people who saw us as the coolest guys on the bus. One time we were on the bus on the way home from camp, and we were messing around, and David ended up throwing my Red Sox hat out the window of the bus near Four Corners in Newton. I still remember the spot, and yes, I was annoyed. And I never found it, even though I went back to find it. And that was very good, because I never let him forget it, 
which was worth way more than the hat. When we were a little bit older, we went to Camp Yavna together. This was overnight camp. Back then, New Edition, boy band, had a song called Candy Girl that everyone was playing. So we changed the words to change it to be about me. Instead of Candy Girl, You Are My World, he used to go Scottish boy from Scotland. Don't ask. I don't know why. It's just the kind of thing he would do. Like, for example, he was a romantic. He was always falling in love with one girl or another. And he used to make up short, stupid two-line poems about them. The same thing. And, you know, before we'd gone to camp, we'd been really good friends. But once we went to overnight camp, from that point on, basically like from the start of high school, David was my best friend. Like, David was the guy I would hang out with all the time. I mean, eventually, because his family lived in Yerushalayim for a couple years before high school. I'll never forget when David came back from Israel. I was so excited to have my friend back. I really can't ever forget that feeling of joy. That feeling of excitement and just happiness. It was so real and genuine. These are just random memories, random scattered reflections drawn from the early years of our friendship. They don't really encapsulate who David Schimmel was. Every time I think about him, another memory surfaces. None of them important on its own, but all of them together telling the story of a unique friendship. But when I think of David, I don't only think about his personality or how much fun he was or the good times we had. I think about him as a philosopher of sorts. In some ways, he was a moral philosopher, an ethicist who always made me think whether I wanted to or not. His relationship with Torah was complex. Complex. Although he grew up in an Orthodox home, going to an Orthodox shul, he was always questioning Orthodoxy. And not in an excuse to not be religious kind of way, but in an authentic questioning, wanting to know the truth way. In fact, a few years ago, when I was first starting Jewish Coffee House, we started working on a project that never actually came to fruition called The Rabbi and the Skeptic, where I would present the classic Orthodox position, and he would tell me what parts he found problematic, and then we'd go at it after that, back and forth. And he was very good at presenting a skeptical position, because he was very skeptical when he wanted to be. But while his relationship with orthodoxy wasn't simple, that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It's hard to explain, but I'm convinced that he was simultaneously a real skeptic and a real believer. I remember years ago talking about Harabait, the Temple Mount, and talking about the possibility of giving it away to the Palestinians. We were talking about the political implications, but David said, what does it really matter? Because right now, most Jews don't go up there anyway. And when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes, we'll get it back. That's an interesting thing for a skeptic to say. For a long time, when I would recount something that David said about Judaism, I would describe him to students as the most from non-Orthodox Jew I ever met. Like if you called him classically Orthodox, that would be completely misleading in many ways. On the other hand, as I understand it, he fasted on all rabbinic fast days that recall the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. I know that on the Thursday before Pesach this year, he joined the siyum that firstborn sons participate in in order to eat that day. Is that the kind of thing that an irreligious person does? No. It's the kind of thing David Schimmel would do. He had a tremendous love for the land of Israel, a place where he and I were roommates before I got married. And he had a tremendous love for the Jewish people. It was profound. 
And that's not a cliche. It was real. He traveled to Russia with YUSSR in the final days of the Soviet Union to teach Judaism there. Last night, I found the following post on David's Facebook page, written by someone he had obviously taught there. My dear friend, David Schimmel, it was a big gift to have you in my life. You were my motivation to learn English. You were my way to Judaism, and your heart was the biggest one I have ever known. I will always remember you. Baruch Dayan HaEmet. You know, looking back, I think that calling him the most frum, non-Orthodox Jew I ever met was incorrect. I should have called him the most Ehrlich, non-Orthodox Jew I ever met. Last week on this podcast, I interviewed Rabbi Yosef Blauschliza about the need for Ehrlichkeit, honesty, genuineness in Judaism, and how we emphasize ritual as the gauge for orthodoxy, while too often ignoring ethics. As Rabbi Blau said, of course you should come on time to the Beit Midrash, and of course you should daven with Kavana three times a day. But that's only part of the story. Rabbi Blau could have been speaking about David Schimmel, because being Ehrlich, honest, fair, ethical, goes to the heart of who David was. I said before that he may have been the most honest person I ever met. And sometimes he was honest to the point of being irritating. Like when he would ask me if I ever thought about personal thing X, Y, or Z, and no, I hadn't thought about personal thing X, Y, or Z and had no intention to. But he was just so honest, so Ehrlich, such a truthful person. And that sometimes meant seeing through the sham and recognizing what matters most. And in that way, his truthful honesty carried along with it a strong sense of ethics and morality. David's were exemplary. Let me tell you a story that David once told me. He was working at a financial company in New York. It was run by a couple of guys who were technically Orthodox Jews. Sometimes they would have a mincha, and David wouldn't necessarily go. I don't know if he ever went. And they would kind of rag on him for that, give him a hard time about the fact that he wasn't davening mincha. One time, David was alone in the office with those guys. They had called a repairman to fix, I think, the telephone wires. The person came, looked at the system they had, and he said, I can't fix these wires for you. It's a different company. Like, if he was from MCI, the system was Sprint or vice versa or whatever, something like that. And so the people who ran the company said, come on, come on, just do it, whatever. And the repairman said, no, I can't do it. I'm not allowed to. So one of those two guys who ran the company took out some money, maybe $100, and said, come on, here, I'll give this to you. Just fix it for us. And the repairman said, sorry, I can't do that, rejecting the bribe and then leaving. The two people who ran the company, these Orthodox Jews, then start talking to each other about what a jerk that repairman was. Can you believe it? Can you believe he wouldn't fix that for us? Then one said to the other, what happens if he says that you tried to bribe him? What are we going to say? So the other one said, oh, I know what we're going to do. If he says that I offered him $100 in order to do it, we'll just say, that's not what happened. What actually happened was, he said he won't do it unless we give him $100 and we wouldn't do it. David overheard them saying that. Orthodox Jews willing to ruin the career and the life of a telephone repairman for the crime of his being Ehrlich and not accepting their bribe. They were willing at least in talking to each other, to turn it around to defend themselves, to say, no, he asked us to bribe him, and we didn't. Two guys who used to complain that David Schimmel didn't go to Mincha. This cut 
David so deeply. I remember when he told me about it, how upset and angry he was about this. Because while David was hilarious and fun and we had a great time, he was equally, or more so actually, gentle and kind. And he didn't understand when people weren't gentle and kind. And he was gentle and kind, not just to people you'd expect him to be gentle and kind to, but to everyone. And that's why today I shake my head and wonder about my own foolishness. Because when David and I talked, David readily let me be the rabbi, the person who kind of acted the role of the teacher about Judaism and our relationship. Only now do I realize how much I learned from him and didn't necessarily appreciate or realize at the time. So I like to think that I'm a moral person, but I can say without qualification that David was my Rebbe when it came to honesty and simply being a good, honest person. I could have had so many more opportunities and conversations and been so much more inspired, but I didn't. Because even though my relationship with David was, in one sense, as strong as ever, in another, I have to admit that we were very different. Our lives were very different. We no longer talk that often. Now, there are people, good friends, with whom I speak way more often than I spoke to David. Our lives had gone in radically different directions. David was, as I said, a romantic. He used to fall in love with different women. But he never got married, and I'm pretty sure regretfully. He had lived with me in Israel, and then without me in Israel after I got married. He eventually moved to New York, and later to Boston again. He lived in Brighton, Massachusetts, first with roommates and more recently without. And in a lot of ways, I don't have to get into the details now, I think it's common knowledge that David had a rough time and he did not have an easy life. It's just so unfair. I feel that so many things worked out for me and those same things didn't work out for him. And because I knew he was always there and our love for each other was as strong as it ever was, I didn't reach out to David as much as now, of course, I wish I had. Our interactions were far less frequent than they should have been. Things weren't so great for him, but he really had an impact on the people who knew him. David had a friend at Yeshiva University named Uri Pransky. They stayed in touch and were very, very good friends. And Uri Pransky, who now lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh, gave me permission to tell the following story. I'm coming pretty close to quoting Uri's words. When Uri was in Yeshiva University, he was not popular and he had social issues. David was one of the few people who requested to be his roommate. There were even people who laughed at the idea that David wanted to be Uri's roommate. But they were roommates. And Uri said that David gave him the insights and the initiative to work on Uri's social issues. Today, Uri lives here in Israel. Uri is happily married, and he has a good job. And Uri told me, that he credits David with the fact that he's happily married and has a good job. He would not have been able to do this without David's help. And as for those people who laughed at David for wanting to room with Uri Pransky, Uri said that David has the last laugh. Uri, by the way, has a lot more to say about David, and he asked me to tell anyone who wants to know more to call him. His phone number is in the description of this podcast. And I thank Uri very much for allowing me to cite his very personal story today. So David's legacy does live on. Uri credits him with the fact that he's happily married, and looking back, seeing what David helped me become, I can probably say the same thing myself. And that brings me to the fact that while we didn't speak so often these days, I know that we were in each other's hearts. When we did talk, it was just as it always had been, slipping right back into the place it was before. I keep thinking about the children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit. 
In that book, the skin horse explains to the toy rabbit the meaning of being real. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real, said the rabbit, and then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The relationship that David and I shared didn't change because it was real. When I graduated from high school, my parents celebrated by having a brunch, and they asked David's father to say the Dvar Torah. I don't remember most of what he said. I only remember one thing, and that is that the friendship that David and I shared reminded him of the friendship of David HaMelech and Yehonatan, David and Jonathan. And David's father was right, because it was real. David died eight days ago, having been found in his apartment. But the feelings I have for David don't go away. They only become stronger because they're real. I want to say three messages today that are a legacy of David Schimmel's. First, the need to reinforce the reality that while Judaism includes ritual, it isn't all about ritual. The Ehrlichkeit embodied and represented by people like David Schimmel is too often ignored. I was just reading an essay by Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich Tzatzal where he points out that even the mitzvot we have between man and God are in fact there to advance positive interactions between people. And he cites no authority less than the Rambam in Moronavuchim, section 3, chapter 35, to prove his claim. Judaism without ritual is not Judaism at all. But without mitzvot ben adam l'chavero, between a person and his fellow, it's a desecration of God's name. We forget this at our own peril, and David Schimmel and those like him teach us about it. Second, our communities, all of us, have failed not only in de-emphasizing Ehrlichkeit, honesty, ethics as key components of Judaism, but also in allowing people to feel somewhat estranged from the community. David Schimmel, my wonderful friend, died alone. Last week, after my interview with Rabbi Blau, I apologized for the fact that I felt a little bit distracted. That was the day that I had found out that David had died. I choked up, and Rabbi Blau said... The fact that such a thing can happen, a person can die alone like that, is yet another failure that we as a community need to address. And I don't know the answer, but I know that what we're doing is not enough. We need to find ways to make everybody welcome and to actively work to bring in those who are not part of our natural communities. And third, that true friendship, real love, lives on beyond the grave. I strongly believe that this is more than a cliché or a way of expressing that our feelings for someone who has left this world still move us. That's true, but it's more than that. Shulamit Salavich Meiselman, 
the sister of Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik Zatzal, wrote a memoir called The Soloveitchik Heritage in 1995. In that book, she tells the story of her youth. I'd like to read a passage that begins on page 178. Speaking of 1918, she writes, One August morning of that year, Father woke up with a cry. He'd had an extraordinary dream. When questioned about it, he said, I was standing with my father on the shores of a river. We were discussing a difficult halachic problem. Suddenly, father turned away from me and, walking toward the river, boarded a small boat. Then, waving to me as if he were saying goodbye, he sailed away, almost into the unknown. Father was terrified. Tell me, he said, what kind of dream is it? What does it mean? I'm certain it has some significance. He immediately wrote to his father and to his sister. A few days later, a friend of the family received a Hebrew newspaper from Minsk. The front page carried a picture of Reb Chaim Soloveitchik with the headline, Reb Chaim Brisker, the greatest sage of our age, is dead. He died in Otwak, a summer resort near Warsaw, on the 21st day of the month of Av, the very same day father had his dream. Father never forgot the dream. He felt that it had been a mystical communication between him and his father, that his father had appeared to him to bid him farewell. Some people dismiss this sort of thing, but I don't. I think that God speaks to us if we have the ears to listen. We should never try to interpret that message as something specific, but we should and must think of it as a divine wink from behind the curtains of the stage, reminding us that yes, there is a director to this show in which we're all actors, and yes, he's watching us, and yes, while we don't understand how the plot fits together, there is a plot and there is a plan. And perhaps just as God himself sometimes winks at us from behind the curtain, he might give others the occasional license to do the same. David's funeral took place last Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time in West Roxbury in Boston. About two hours before that, as I sat in front of my computer going through my memories, my son Yaakov went to the piano, which he hasn't been doing much because it's the Omer, and for some reason... At this time, he started playing. He played a slow version of Take On Me by Aha. Yaki didn't know this was David's song. At least that wasn't why he was playing it. But he played it. And it was an extremely emotional moment for me. And I honestly felt that it was David's way of saying goodbye before the Leviah and whatever comes next for him. I can hear him saying, I just got to say goodbye to Scott first. Perhaps my hashkafot, my strong belief in hashkacha pratit, divine providence, my strong belief that there's only a thin veil that separates us from other worlds, my intense feeling that we have connections with other people in a spiritual way, which we normally cannot sense, but which are there in an intense way nonetheless, are pushing me towards wishful thinking. But I think it's more than wishful thinking. It was David's way of saying, to use a metaphor, one day we'll play wiffle ball again. David Schimmel is no longer here. The veil separating our worlds is sometimes as thick as iron and sometimes as thin as tissue paper if we open our eyes. And even though I expect that I will not be hearing from David again in the coming days, his legacy lives on in everyone he touched, in everyone he made laugh, in everyone whose life was made better for having come in contact with him. I'll always carry him along with me. And perhaps you, who listened to just a bit of his story, can carry him along with you by demonstrating kindness, gentleness, honesty, ethics, and a sense of skepticism about the way things are so that we can make them better. Thank you all for letting me tell you a little bit about my friend 
David Schimmel. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thank you.